Good evening, everyone. Tonight, I'd like to elaborate a little bit on what Pam and Jack started to talk about, the whole question of identity, that big spiritual question, who am I? Who are you? I think it's even better when we say, who are we? Because we share the 10,000 joys and sorrows with each other. I sometimes uh, joke that the entire teaching of the Buddha can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. So the disciples come to the master and they say, And the master answers with the number one spiritual question. Who's there? Now, if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again until you do get it. But it is uh, such an important question uh, because it determines how we see ourselves in the scheme of things, determines how we feel about our lives and how we treat each other and the environment. So the Hopi say, you must ask three questions. Where, am I, where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? What am I? Socrates said, know thyself. In Zen, they have this interesting way of framing the question, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? Her people, I don't know. Uh, Or uh, who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? The Advaita Vedanta masters would say, who is it that's asking this question, who am I? They keep pulling the rug out, giving you nowhere to stand at all. The Buddha said that true happiness could only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I, or self. And indeed, it was central in his teaching, this question of identity. Unfortunately, we are all born with a case of mistaken identity. And we grow into our lives believing that we are in here and the world is out there. Rarely recognizing that the world is here. We always think we are acting on the world, never realizing that the world is acting through us. So, we have a job, we have a task of seeing through this mistaken identity. And the Buddha's genius was that he was able to do that. He was able to see through the membrane the thin membrane of self, and realize that we co-arise with all things. That we are not this separate entity we always believed ourselves to be. It's interesting to note, the Buddha actually started to give us a new identity. It's interesting to note, though, uh, that it didn't always feel this way. 
to be somebody. The, the shoe of the self was never, was not always this tight. For instance, if you'd have asked a desert nomad uh, or a European surf 300 years ago, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. They did what they were born into. The American uh, psychologist Rollo May says, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Evidence from early Greek literature indicates that the Greeks actually thought the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which we, of course, now would consider schizophrenic. But now we think all the voices in our heads are ours, (laughs) which is its own kind of madness. All life seems to have some sense of self or of self and world, self and other. But we seem to have come to an extreme place in our civilization. Here in the land of individualized license plates. The story we tell ourselves is all about me, my personal drama. We... We've lost what anthropologists used to call a participation mystique, a sense of belonging to something bigger, nature or tribe or community. And our individualism is isolating and suffocating, and it's a source of our political and ecological crises, as well as a cause of so much of our suffering, this sense of the isolated self. Meanwhile, modern science is giving us a whole new picture of who we are in the scheme of things. Saying that we are interconnected with all and everything. In physics, they call it entanglement. And this new story that's coming out of modern science is saying that we are related to all the life that's ever lived. We are cell-related. The the, the story of evolution is everybody's autobiography. We now know, for instance, our bodies are made out of the heavy elements formed in the explosion of supernova in the early history of the universe. This body is literally stardust. Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a rock. Once I was a cloud. This is not poetry. This is science. If you just uh, rub your upper and lower teeth together a little or touch your knuckle or your knee, feel the hardness of the bone, 
Your bones are made of calcium, phosphates, silicates, essentially the clay of earth, mysteriously molded into this shape. Where else could these bodies have come from? Most of your body is liquid, and most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the oceans. We sweat and cry seawater. And science is finding out that we are composed of, made out of, all the life that came before us. One of the great discoveries of uh, the mid-20th century was made by Dr. Paul McLean at the National Institute of Mental Health, where he was studying the evolution of the brain and realized that we don't have a brain. We have three brains. And they grow in each of us as we develop in the same order that they grew in nature. First, we grow a, a brain stem, the reptilian brain, it's known as. And then we grow a limbic system, the mammalian brain. And then we grow the new human brain, the neocortex. And more and more serious scientific research is indicating that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. (laughs) That we aren't so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. Science is bringing us a powerful message of a new picture of who we are. But all of that new, exciting information can lie rusting in the neocortex. How do we turn it into wisdom? How do we make it part of who we are and the the story that we live from? our understanding of our relatedness. How, do, how does that happen? And that's where the Buddha Dharma comes in so beautifully. Because it really shows us and teaches us and gives us an experiential understanding that I'm not self I didn't create this, this being. Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible, we need a new experience of what it means to be I or me. And meditation can reveal our new identity to us and bring it to life. The Buddha laid out the path in the Satipatthana Sutra, as Pam and Jack both talked about. We develop this quality of mindfulness, which I like to think of as the opposable thumb of consciousness, allows us to reach out and take hold of reality in a completely different way. Develop this quality of mindfulness, and then we go and begin to investigate this body, this breath, this mind, these emotions. And the Buddha is is always probing us and and encouraging us to ask the questions. What is the origin of this? 
What is its ancestry? Where does this come from? About all our experience, we can ask that. The, the Buddha was a great scientist. In developing mindfulness and taking mindfulness in to explore our, our being, he was asking us to be as objective as possible about ourselves as the subject. So it really was the scientific method. And he was like an, a naturalist. Go into the wilderness of this self and explore. Take notes. What do you find? Some bear scat and uh, some squirrels, monkey mind, and here comes a nasty mood again. You're looking around. You're trying to understand this, this being that you are. Could be, as we do this practice, as we explore ourselves, we will discover that we are not who we thought we were. I like to think that we will discover also our other selves, our species self, our human self, our animal self. We will realize who we are, and it's much bigger than we thought we were. We thought we were just this single self, the me, the I, the one with an address and email address. But we're much more than that, much, much more than that. I think, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm hoping that we begin, and this is part of, I think, the work that we do, whether we're con- super conscious of it or not, is we're gaining evolutionary wisdom when we do this practice. We're learning about the story, our, our autobiography. When we see what we inherit from evolution, we will no, no longer blame ourselves quite so much. We will begin to understand that you are not your fault. I think it was Mark Twain who said, if man had created himself, he would be quite ashamed of his workmanship. (laughs) Also, when we see how we are stuck as the beings that we are, we begin to gain compassion, not not only for ourselves, but for all of us who are living with the same constraints and the same inheritance, and compassion for all living beings as well. Meditation can be seen as a practice of both self-liberation and deep ecology. So, let me talk a little bit about how I, I have found this worked for me, in, at least to some degree. For instance, uh, I started paying attention to my breath when I first started meditating, as many of us do using the breath as an object of concentration, a place to put my attention and to settle the mind and and focus. But then, after a while, the breath began to teach me a lot of other things. 
most particularly that it was going on without me, that my breath was happening through me and life was was living through me, that I wasn't in charge of my breath. When I brought my attention to my breath, I was aware of it, but then, uh, you know, most of my life, I haven't been aware of it, and it's been doing fine without me. (laughs) Breathing. In fact, if you try to stop breathing, hold your breath, you'll pass out, and breathing will continue. (laughs) It's like life insists that you live. I think Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. <laughs> and, and that was another thing that began to come alive for me as I, as I brought my attention to my breath over and over again, over years and years, was this is the central aspect of my being. This is the centerpiece of it. Everything else revolves around that. This vital pump of, this umbilical pump that keeps me connected to my source of nutrient, my, my, life, my life force. And with a little reflection, I realize that this breath connects me to all the other beings that are breathing, and especially to the plant kingdom, and every, with every breath I take, I'm exchanging vital nutrients with the plants. And they're, they're feeding me. I'm feeding them. With every breath, I become a cell in the great breathing of this single organism known as Gaia, the earth mother, the earth goddess. You know that we are inhaling particles at this very moment that could have gone through the lungs of the Buddha? Very possible. (laughs) And Genghis Khan. (laughs) But now it's more and more it's come to be when when I reflect on it I find the breath to be the symbol for me or the sign for me of the mystery itself. As it is in many mystics, mystical traditions. And I have to reflect on it some. It's not automatically that way. But... The breath helps me get out of the story of my life and into the fact of my life where I am part of much bigger much bigger projects and phenomena than when I'm in my own story alone. By the way, Carl Jung said if you are depressed you're too high up in your mind. Oh, and By the way, you get about an average of about 15 million breaths in a lifetime. Do you know which one you're, which million you're working on at this point? No? You lost count? So, similar learning through 
mindfulness of body. My first practice was with SN Goenka, where we did the body scan, and uh, it was a focus on uh, Vedana, feelings, sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And we would scan our mind through our body over and over again until there was no solidity. You couldn't feel any solidity, and Goenka would be sitting up on his podium and chanting, Anicca, 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 impermanence, and, and you'd be feeling it. You'd be feeling it in your body. Very powerful practice. At times I felt like I actually could, had entered into a subatomic realm. I was actually feeling the molecules of my body. But it really began to teach me that this body is not a thing. It's a process, and it is continually in the mode of changing. It is, it, is, it, is, it is full of motion. It's not the solid thing that I always thought it was. And I also began to realize that I didn't really own this body. It got tired when it wanted to. It got hungry when it wanted to. It got horny when it wanted to. Without consulting me. I didn't choose this body. I certainly don't remember a catalog of choices being offered. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you, would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? No, I was just given the standard issue, you know, biped, mid-sized mammal, big forebrain. But more and more I began to see that the, the body too has a life of its own. Where did it come from? We just felt the hardness of the bone and the heat. You, I mean, if you close your eyes right now, just for a second, close your eyes and just feel your body. Realize what's going on in there right now. Millions of new cells are being born every minute. Millions. Millions are dying. Right now, all these little beings, these little mitochondria, are taking the, uh, burning oxygen and taking the energy stored up from the sun and turning it into your living energy, creating this heat around your body. All of these amazing phenomena going on right now inside of you. Your brain is processing an estimated 11 million bits of information a second. And you hardly have to lift a finger. Quite a phenomena. So, as we do the meditation practice, we begin to become familiar with ourselves in a, and, and uh, come, become familiar with an, a different story about who we are. And as we do the practice of meditation, we start to encounter also uh, all the different kinds of mind states that happen to human beings. In particular, we see the pervasiveness of desire and aversion. 
sort of the two forces that run our lives, desire and aversion. Long before Freud or Darwin, the Buddha understood that what really drives our lives are these continual movements of mind toward something that's good or that feels good or that tastes good and away from something that looks like it could be harmful or hurtful. That these are the things that really control who we are and how we, how we, how we feel. It's perfectly natural, I want to make that caveat, that desire, aversion are perfectly natural. They, they serve their purpose, they keep us, you know, they keep us eating and procreating, and they, they make us take our hand away from a hot stove. They work for us. But the Buddha discovered that actually we get into such a habit of being in the state of dissatisfaction that it goes on and on and on. And that we're, we're ruled by these, these forces of desire and aversion. We become slaves to them. The Buddha called them underlying tendencies. And to some degree, they're, they're built into uh, the mammalian condition. This is um, Melvin Connor, neuroscientist. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. That that is sort of the default position of the brain. It is continually looking for threats and opportunities a vague mixture of anxiety and desire. And we can see this in meditation. The mind constantly twitching away. Take some, some part of a, a meditation session and count how many times the mind falls into one or the other of those two uh, modes. Desiring or aversion. It's shocking sometimes to see how often it happens and how continual it is. You'll be sitting there. Your knees are hurting. Aversion. You're desiring the bell to ring. Desire. The bell rings a moment of satisfaction as you're arising, you decide, you say, oh no, and walking period, aversion. <laughs> I, I want to go back to my room and look at my stuff, desire. 
And it just, it just, it just rolls on like that. It can be really, it can be embarrassing to see. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, where you desire to be where you already are. Maybe it's just a little different, something a little different. It's insidious. And the Buddha's, one of the, the great breakthrough that he saw was that we have a lot of unnecessary desire. That, that it's not our satisfaction of the latest desire that's going to do it for us. But we can see this desire wheel that's going around and we can learn how to calm it. We can learn uh, its, its insidious nature and begin to override its, uh, its menacing, irritating, continual nagging at us to do this or that or want this or that. It was this, that was the insight that led him to his second noble truth and his third noble truth. The second noble truth being the first insight is that the thirst of craving is what leads to suffering. The third noble truth is that by calming the thirst of craving, we come to a different kind of uh, satisfaction. Trying to find where how he put it exactly. The second insight is that by the cooling of this thirst, no more suffering is created. And as we meditate over the days, you'll probably have some moments where you really are out of that loop of desire. Let yourself taste it. It's very rare. And you will begin to feel what it's like when that uh, desire wheel is calmed. When that dissatisfaction is slowed down inside the mind. It's a whole different kind of happiness. The Buddha called it the highest happiness. Because you're no longer looking for satisfaction, looking out, out there. You're feeling it here. It's possible here. It's persistent desire and aversion. I a little story. I had the privilege by accident once of flying in an 18-seater plane with the Dalai Lama. I just happened to be in Dharamsala and happened to be getting on this plane to go to New Delhi and uh, on my way to the airport driving through the streets of Dharamsala, the Tibetans were out and waving at the, I thought they were waving at me and I waved back. But, <laughs> but I got to the, the airport and uh, he was there with an entourage and they were flying to New Delhi to do some business. And my wife at the time was reading his autobiography, which said that he's afraid of horses and flying. 
and he sat a couple rows behind me, and he had cotton in his ears, and he was pale, and he was leaning out against the window and doing his mala money, but man. I personally felt a lot safer having him on the, on the plane, but, but he obviously did not, did not feel safe. But, I mean, we all can probably tell stories about quite realized beings that still have aversions and desires, Pretty powerful stuff. In some way, you could think of all, that all life has desire. I mean, even a, a tree, you know, lifting up, growing up, it, you know, asking for sunlight. It's a form of desire. Or an animal running away from a loud sound, a form of aversion. So in this process of meditation, we begin to really become familiar with what is given, what is built in, what is, what is workable in this incarnation. We begin to experience difficult moods, emotions, known as mind states in Buddhism. Generally not so, we are generally not so aware of mind states and, and, and moods and, because we're caught in them. So we rarely recognize that we are in them. I mean, we might recognize it, but not with a mindfulness, not with the ability to know that they have arisen. We, we, are, we let them define us. I don't have feelings. Feelings have me. But because we are being mindful and practicing mindfulness, when these moods start coming, coming through, you start to, to realize it and, and pay attention to them and maybe ask, where did that come from? How did that get there? Sometimes it's, uh, you know, you, a memory flits through your mind and here comes sorrow or something somebody says, or maybe you just uh, haven't eaten for a while and you have low blood sugar and the grump comes, you know, and, and takes over your life for a while. It's so interesting to begin to see how they come and go, independent of our inviting them or asking them. And how, if we pay attention to them and allow them, they have their own life and move, move through. My big mood problem is, is restlessness. I'm always, I'm always, I'm very restless. Jack said I couldn't die from it. But I think I did once. And then... I was reborn and I was restless again. <laughs> That's what you get for not taking care of your business, you know. I'm, but uh, I'm always planning my next peak experience. <laughs> now, at least, I'm, I'm getting old enough so that 
the effort to create the peak experience is hardly worth it usually. So <laughs> it's sort of taken care of itself now. But I, I used to think about it and, and realize that it was part of, uh, it's part of this doing, the, the, the doing being, the, you know, that we have to get things done, that we're, we're very much uh, creatures that, that want to keep doing and working and fixing and protecting, you know, find some solid security and lasting happiness, live forever and, and, and happily ever after. And, you know, we, we're always working towards that. And when we stop doing that, we get nervous. Uh, our brains uh, were basically designed over millions of years for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. So, if we're not hunting or gathering, we get a little restless. We get a little, you know, uh, insecure. That's one reason why it's hard. When you come to a meditation retreat, busy people, and suddenly you're not doing anything but sitting and being quiet, and your mind goes, your, your whole being goes crazy. We're vulnerable. We've got to do something. <laughs> Plan. <laughs> Assess your situation. <laughs> How can you get out of here? What, <laughs> what can you do? If it gets too bad, I have a suggestion. Go into the restroom and memorize the hand-washing instructions. <laughs> It satisfies that certain part of the brain that does <laughs> Okay, now, what this, this is so familiar as to be almost uh, uh, needless to say, as we meditate, we encounter this thinking mind, this crazy, wild thinking mind. Uh, I think that's why I came to meditation in the first place, was that I recognized that my mind had a thinking problem. (laughs) It would start thinking the minute I got up in the morning, would think in the middle of the afternoon, had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night. (laughs) I needed an intervention, right? Now my relationship to my thinking mind has changed quite a bit, actually, sometimes. We're still friends, and, and we live together, but uh, <laughs> we're no longer quite so codependent. I can now sometimes say, yeah, 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 yeah. Go on, go on. I, I sometimes can get that distance from it, and that is it's such a relief when you don't have to listen to yourself. <laughs> you learn to ignore yourself. It is, it is a gift that is, it keeps on giving. <laughs> One of the great misunderstandings for people who are uh, just beginning meditation or uh, people who hear about meditation, they think it's about getting rid of thoughts, but that's not it at all. Uh, 
we have to honor thinking. It is a fantastic uh, adaptation, development of, of our species that allows us to share our knowledge and pass it from generation to generation and, and to uh, carry out very complex uh, activities together because we have agreed on these sounds and the, these symbols that stand for things. And it, it's brilliant, you know. Uh, language is, is fabulous and, and thinking is sometimes good too. <laughs> but, but we've become its, its slave also as you probably know from, from sitting for a few days. We get uh, graded on how well we think, how well we take our thoughts and manipulate them or remember them or switch them around. Uh, there's a great emphasis on identifying with your thinking in, a, in our culture. But we very rarely look at the process of thinking. We're always, almost always engaged in the content of thoughts. If we start to look at the process of thinking, it is a huge revelation. We, first of all, we realize, as you probably have at, from time to time, you know, you're sitting there, your intention is to just be present with your breath, and these thoughts keep coming in and saying, come here, got to think about this, you know, without asking you, of course. And you begin to see that, you know, they, they come, they're, they're like pulses of the, of the brain, they just keep coming. And uh, you begin to see the process of thinking itself. This is uh, the Tibetan sage, Tulku Ergen, great 20th century teacher, Lama. The stream of thoughts surges through the mind of an ordinary person. We call it dark diffusion, this state, an unwholesome pattern of dissipation in which there is no knowledge whatsoever about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness. There are only unwholesome thought patterns operating so that one is mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. That's the normal state of, of, uh, of the human, of the human mind, thinking mind. Do you think in your own voice Do you have your own diction when you think? What does your mind think of you? <laughs> Descartes should have said, I think, therefore, I think I am. It's very interesting to uh, regard your thinking as a biological function, as a part of what the brain, this organ, does inside of you, and, uh, and how devoted it is to your survival, and that 
if if you take a session of of sitting and meditation and just count how many of your thoughts could be somehow classified as survival thoughts having to do with your security or continued uh, aliveness uh, your place in the pecking order that would be included it's it's phenomenal and so you have to bow to your you know your thinking brain and say thank you very much you know I'm really glad you're you're working for me but beginning to ta- change the relationship that you know you don't have to be a slave you, we have the ability to override our karma we seem to be the only species that that does i don't know how how you might frame it in scientific terms do we have can we take evolution into our own hands can we override our instincts 20,000 years ago our ancestors thoughts were probably something like i wonder who's going on the hunt tomorrow what color should i paint my spear or who's watching the fire now 501k the grocery list love life basically the same stuff but we have advanced now we have the buddha dharma a great tool but as we explore ourselves in this practice that we're doing mindfulness meditation our sense of identity can begin to shift consciously or unconsciously we really begin to reconnect with the sources of our experience with the sources of our body we begin to realize that uh, our experiences includes the mammal condition and the human condition and that our individual human lives are first and foremost life and all that that requires then second human and only thirdly and narrowly is it individual and to close let me well i have, i want to read something to close but one more thing here uh to remember that we are a baby species we're just waking up and we're doing it right here together of course collectively you might think that uh, of your efforts to awaken as being part of our whole species effort to awaken um but we really are a baby species we got these big brains uh just a couple million years ago they started growing um we're just learning how to use them they didn't come with a good instruction manual so be forgiving of yourself all the time when you when you think you're failing because you can't be mindful every moment of the day forgive yourself be tender with yourself uh and honor this this amazing wondrous mysterious incarnation as jack uh said on 
the first night, the, the poem by Nisargadatta Maharaj, his statement, uh, love tell, uh, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And in between the two, my life flows. Such a beautiful statement. So let me close by reading to you from Chief Seattle. Actually, first Albert Einstein. Whenever you quote Albert Einstein, you know everybody's going to believe you. (laughs) A human being is part of the whole, the universe. We experience thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. The delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of love and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Break out of prison. And this is Chief Seattle. Every part of the earth is sacred to my people. Every shining pine needle, every sandy shore, every mist in the dark woods, every meadow, every humming insect, all are holy. We know the sap that courses through the trees as we know the blood that runs through our veins. We are part of the earth and the earth is part of us. The perfumed flowers are our sisters. The bear, the deer, the great eagle, these are our brothers. The rocky crests, the berries in the meadow, the body heat of the pony and the people all belong to the same family. Let's sit together for a minute. Thank you all for your attention. We have about 40 minutes for walking, and then we'll meet back here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.